Alright, so as we start in this study tonight, Where Did the Dead Go? Let me begin by making a couple of remarks. The soul does not sleep when we die, the body does. Both the Lord Jesus Christ and Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, used sleep as a euphemism for death. So when they spoke about going to sleep, it simply meant death, which is apparent by the context. It's a euphemism. A Seventh-day Adventist or a Jehovah's Witness will follow the reading that when we die, the soul sleeps in the grave until the resurrection, which is an error. But let's deal with that one first, soul sleep. Now, in the Bible, death is defined as the soul departing the Bible, or the body. Death is defined in the Bible as the soul leaving the body. Alright? So, let's look first of all at the death of Abraham in the Scriptures. Genesis 25.8 Hope you brought your Bible tonight. We're going to turn in several places, and I just want you to see these um, for yourself. We'll, we'll look uh, first of all at three references in the book of Genesis. Genesis 25 in verse 8. Now we're under the Old Testament dispensation, and we're talking about death as it was in the Old Testament. When Jesus spoke about the rich man and Lazarus, we were still under the Old Testament. So the way that he described death was in an Old Testament uh, dispensation. So, or God's way of doing things in the Old Testament. So Genesis 25 and verse 8 says here, Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man, full of years, and was gathered to his people. So notice that Abraham gave up the ghost, and he died in verse 8. So we are told uh, a little bit about what that phrase means, giving up the ghost, that he died. And he was gathered, notice at the end of verse 8, gathered to his people. Now, this phrase, gathered to his people, could not refer to his burial, since his people were in Ur of the Chaldees. That's where he came from, you remember? Um, If we had a map up here of the Mediterranean Sea and and the land of Canaan, now, all the way over here, across this desert area, you'd have uh, what we would consider to be the Gulf of uh, Iraq, the Iraqi Gulf, and then the Euphrates River and the Tigris River. Ur of the Chaldees was on the Euphrates River, all the way over here. That's where he came from. So his people over here. And so it says that he was gathered to his people. That's not referring to him being buried with his people. Since he was buried in the cave uh, that he had purchased in Machpelah, where his wife Sarah was, was buried. That's where he was buried. Gathered to his people is referring to his soul departing his body. That is a phrase that refers to the afterlife, or life after death. 
Genesis 25, verse 8. Now, look at 35, verse 29. So, gathered to his people is referring to his soul departing his body, and it's referring to life after death. Genesis 35, verse 29. And in Genesis 35, verse 29, we read about the death of Isaac. And Isaac gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So we see that when he died, the Bible says again that he was gathered unto his people. All right, now look at Genesis 49 and verse 33. Genesis 49, 33. This is Jacob. So these are the first three fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 49 verse 33 And it says here, And when Jacob had made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. No soul sleep here. Jacob yielded up the ghost. This phrase is referring to death. On the cross, it says of Jesus that he gave up the ghost. It's referring to death, but it means more than just the physical death. Because in the Bible, death is defined as the soul leaving the body. So when he gave up the ghost, he expired physically. And his soul departed from his body, which is death in the Bible for a believer. For a believer. Now, if you say, how do you know? that his soul departed from the body. Well, there's, there's several ways of knowing that, but we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. So we're going to go back to 35, verse 18. Say, why didn't we look at that when we were there? Because you've got to look at it in a certain order. I'm building a case here. So back at 35 and then verse 18. This is the death of Rachel, Jacob's wife. And uh, the Bible describes her death... In detail, in the unseen realm of the afterlife, it tells us what happens. Genesis 35 and verse 18, so it says here, It came to pass as her soul was in departing. That was the great departure. You know, when you go to... Who here has never flown in an airplane? Okay, it's interesting. Okay, if you get a ticket... And you go down, maybe you'll go down to the Yeager Airport down in West Virginia and fly out of there if you ever fly in an airplane. Uh, you might go to Columbus, I don't know. They will have a departure time. And that's when you leave that airport and that city. And you depart, and then they'll have an arrival time for the airport where you make your landing and, and you depart uh, there to another flight, or maybe that's it. And so there's a departure um, Now this is the departure of the soul. And it says, for she died in parentheses. So there's the Holy Spirit's commentary on his own inspired scripture. She was in departing, for she died. So you see the definition of death 
for a believer in the Old Testament or in the Bible is the departure of the soul from the body. That she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. So the Bible says that when a person dies in the Old Testament, their soul departs from the body. You see? Now, there are many who believe that the soul at death departs from the body. And they have that much right. There's over a billion of these sort of people. Uh, So at least they have that part right. But they claim that the souls who are not fully fit for heaven go to a place called purgatory. And that word purgatory is not found in the Bible. Purgatory. What do you think that this first part of the word... I didn't put an R in there. What do you think that first part of the word refers to? Refers to a purging. To purge something. To get something unclean or contaminated out. So that word is not found in the Bible. The word means a place of purification. The doctrine of purgatory was not known in the first century of the church. It was not known in the second century of the church. Or in the third century. Or the fourth century. Or the fifth century. Or the sixth century. It was not invented until the 600s. Uh, the 600s it was invented. The origin of that belief uh, that souls of men that were dead but not fit to go immediately to heaven uh, said that there was an intermediate place that was invented and uh, that way that soul could spend some time in this middle place, this third place, to be purged of their sin through physical suffering. Yes, through real physical suffering. That's what they taught. And so in order to be purged from that sin, they would have to suffer a fiery, uh, fiery torment. According to this erroneous teaching, the soul in purgatory can do nothing toward its own deliverance. And it's dependent upon the prayers and the masses said by the living. Now, the purpose of this doctrine was to secure revenue for the church by working on the sympathies of loved ones who would pay for the masses and uh, would pray so that the souls would be delivered. That would be relatives, friends, you know, that they would think of as being in the torments of purgatory and to get them out as quickly as possible, you've got to shell out some uh, shekels. Um, now, that quote came from Clarence Larkin, rightly dividing the word. So obviously that teaching is unscriptural. You won't find it in the Bible. There's no intermediate place between paradise and hell. Instead, Jesus said that there's a great gulf fixed in between. A great gulf, right? Now, along the lines of this great gulf, this great chasm or canyon fixed in between, which might possibly be, and I guess... We wouldn't be wrong in, in at least uh, implying that that great gulf might be the bottomless pit. It might be where the, the, the fallen angels that became devils are chained. Some of them, it says, in outer darkness. Maybe that's the bottomless pit. But the other night I was drawing on an Etch-A-Sketch. And I don't know if I told you about this or not. But I drew like this. And then I went like this. And then I went like this. And uh, Lucas was sitting there with me on the couch, and he's not in here, is he? Okay. And 
I said, Lucas, over here is God, and then this is you over here. So, Lucas came up with this all by himself. He said, this is a cliff. And I said, yeah, that's right. And he said, if you go over that cliff, you'll die. He said that. I didn't say that. He got that from Mario Brothers. But anyways, that's really where he got it from. If you go over there, you'll die. And I said, that is right. That is absolutely right. I said, God's over here. How are you going to get over here to God? And he just sat there and was you know, thinking about it. He could tell the wheels were turning. I don't know. I don't know how you're going to do that. And of course, the answer is, and I told him, and I drew it with a little Etch-A-Sketch. I said, what God did was God made a bridge. And that bridge is the cross. And that's how we can get across that great canyon. But Jesus talked about, he talked about there being, on one side, hell, the place of the tormented and the damned, and on the other side being paradise, and the rich man was over here, and Lazarus was over here, and the rich man could speak to him, and Lazarus could speak to the rich man, but Jesus said that there's a great gulf fixed, and Jesus said that no man can pass that. You can't get across it. So that means that there's no way of getting from one place to the other. You know, you're either in hell or you're in paradise. There's no, there's no purgatory in between there. Um, so there's two places in the Bible, not three places. I'm going to quote Larkin again. The doctrine of purgatory is the result of a defective view in the work of Christ on the cross. So what they're saying is they're implying that the death of Christ was not sufficient to pay a soul's ransom. Uh, Because if it had been sufficient, then we wouldn't have to go to purgatory to pay for our sins, to be purged of remaining sin and guilt. Uh, So they're saying Jesus on the cross wasn't good enough. You've got to add something to it, which I think is dishonoring to Jesus and just blasphemous, you know. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins. Now, how many sins? All sins, right? How many times did he suffer according to that? Once. Christ also hath once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And he is the propitiation for our sins. Now hold on a minute. That's a big word. It simply means this. It means that he satisfied the wrath of God and the punishment of God against sins. He satisfied it. The propitiation for our sins. So that God could in turn have mercy upon us. That same word is, is closely linked to the mercy seat in the tabernacle and the temple. The mercy seat, that's the place where the The priest went in once a year, God's presence was there, and that's where the priest could receive God's mercy. It was called the mercy seat, that's where God dwelt. Uh, He could receive the mercy of God so that he could make the atonement for Israel and people could be forgiven of their sins. So this is where we receive our mercy. He is the propitiation for our sins. And that means no one else is. You understand? And not for ours only. Okay, let's just look at it this way. He's the propitiation for our sins. I believe everybody in here is saved. If you're not, you need to get saved. Amen? But if, you're, but if you're saved, you can say, He's the propitiation for our sins. Right here. 
but not for ours only, also for the sins of the whole world. Everybody in Racine, everybody in Meigs County, you know, and in the whole world. So, how many sins did he die for? All, right? Am I making this up? Am I trying to pull your leg? Pull the wool over your eyes? Am I just a Protestant with another interpretation on the Scripture? We don't need to interpret it. We need to believe what it actually says, right? What you got? He's a lawyer. He's an ambassador. He's an intercessor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I would even add, he's the priest and the sacrifice. He's both. Yeah, and so um, this idea of having to spend time in purgatory to burn off remaining sins uh, is unfortunate. The fact that masses are offered for the dead shows that misconception of the purpose of the Lord's Supper. So now I'm still talking about... um, Talking about soul sleep, talking about now purgatory, another error, uh, purgatory. Um, And underneath purgatory, we've talked about the fact that Christ's death is sufficient. But now this also relates to the Lord's table. Because if masses have to be offered for the dead, that's what they'd say, that means that they don't understand the purpose of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not a sacrament. That means that it has nothing saving in it. To say that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament would say that it it has saving value. They would say salvific value. And uh, it has nothing saving in it. It's simply a memorial that looks back to the cross and forward to His coming. Right? Between the fall and Calvary, there's an altar. That's in the Old Testament. The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, if we had a timeline, and then Calvary, between those two events, you have an altar. Abraham went up to the mountain and he built an altar and worshipped God. And then when Moses came along, God says, I don't want you worshipping here and there and yonder. I want one place for worship. It's at the tabernacle. And so there's your altar. There's another altar. And then at at the cross, that's the final death that uh, would fulfill all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament uh, that foreshadowed Christ's one effectual sacrifice. So, after the cross, is there an altar? Do we have an altar now? I know as Baptists we talk about coming up to the altar, but I'm saying, that, no, that's not biblical, but it's, it's useful. But anyways, do we have an altar after the cross? No. What do we have? We have a table. We have a table. And what is the meaning of the table? The, the wine and the bread. What's the meaning of it? It's a memorial of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it is, he, Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. Now, if the wine and the bread represent the real body and blood of Jesus Christ, as those who teach the doctrine of transubstantiation, then every time a Mass is offered, Christ is sacrificed Again, because if you have an altar, you have a sacrifice, right? And the partaker of the Mass is called a good eater, quote, unquote, good eater, and also a cannibal for feasting on flesh and blood of a human being. And cannibalism is prohibited. It is forbidden in the Bible. 
So that's why I can't go along with that view of things. Now, finally, what happens to a Christian when he dies? So we looked at soul sleep. We looked at uh, purgatory. These are two options for where you go after you die. And I told you that the only true option is that you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And it depends on what you do with Jesus Christ. And annihilation is really not even worth giving our time to. That's for infidels who reject the natural revelation of this created world, the inner revelation of the conscience, and the supernatural revelation of the scriptures. They reject all of that, just blind guides leading the blind until they both fall into a ditch. So um, the last and the true... uh, option is what happens to a Christian when he dies. So we're going to look at that. Next week we're going to look at hell and uh, I'm going to handle it in a way that you're not going to expect. So uh, it'll be very biblical but you just come, okay? There's not too many times in a year when you're going to hear somebody preach on hell um, and I'm going to teach on it from a biblical perspective. So let's look at what a Christian, uh, what happens to a Christian when he dies. So first of all, Philippians. Some of these verses have been quoted in our studies, but I just want you to see them, and I thought maybe you'd want to mark them down uh, for your own reference. But Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 24. So we're in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Then you have four little books, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. So Philippians 1, verse 20. Any uh, questions about that or thoughts about that? Have you ever run into someone who followed the teachings of um, the Jehovah's Witness or the Seventh-day Adventists that says it's soul sleep? You ever run into that? So I see a couple heads nodding there, maybe a few there. Uh, there's also a guy, Ted Garner Armstrong, which was the son of Harold Armstrong? And the the, uh, the the Church of God, the World Church of God, way out there. He had a real popular radio show. He's been on Oprah. He's been on TV. Uh, I guess he was on Oprah and the the Dan Ank- John Ankerberg show. Um, and then his son Ted Garter Armstrong. Yeah, way out there, way out there. But they had a lot of people. Uh, buying into what they were selling and deceived by their false teaching. So Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. And the reason why the Armstrongs were deceived by that is that they were dabbling in Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism and, and so on. So uh, what happens to a Christian when he dies? Philippians chapter 1 and verse 20. So according to my earnest expectation and my hope, now, Paul's talking about life after death. He, he said, it's my earnest expectation and my hope. That's a positive way to think, isn't it? You see? That in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or whether it be by death. You know, folks, the next time you're feeling down, about the process of aging. 
Just get that verse right there and meditate on it for a while. Or the process of some disease attacking your immunity system, you know. Seriously. I mean, we all think about it. Especially, you know, you hit about middle age and you start thinking about it. So, uh, what, what should be our, what should be our uh, thinking? How do we get our head screwed back on straight? You just say, Jesus, I want you to be magnified. I, wanna, I want to make you bigger and more. Uh, I want people to see you more and more in my life. I want to magnify you. I want you to be glorified. I want to exalt you with my life. I want your praise to be on my lips at all times. And if it's in my body, you're magnified through whatever I go through, whether it be sickness or health. And whether it be by life or by death, I want to magnify you. And so, um, verse 21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So, now if you're going to die and go into a hole in the ground and stay there for only the Lord knows how long, is that gain? No. (laughs) No, it would be gain if you went to be with the Lord, though. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I what not. Paul is saying, if I stay here, I get to do more work and earn more rewards and see more fruit, more lives changed by the gospel. So it's better to be alive. (laughs) For I am in a strait betwixt two. So he said, I got a tough decision here. Having a desire to depart and to be with Christ which is far better. So according to Paul, what happens when you depart? Remember we talked about the departure in the Old Testament? According to Paul, what happens when you depart this life? You go to be with Christ. Okay, just so you know, I'm not making this up. Which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul said, I got one of two options. Either I stay here in this old stinking body, and I can help you, and I can work, and I can earn more rewards for the coming kingdom. Or, I can depart from this body and go into a hole in the ground and sleep there until Jesus comes back. Is that what he said? No. (laughs) To go to be with Christ. Is Christ in a hole in the ground? No, we've already studied where he is. He's ascended on the right hand of the Father, right? He's making intercession for us, praying for us. Okay. So Paul said, and he'd already talked about how he'd gone up there before. All right, so there's, there's a great passage for it. Now, 2 Corinthians, another real strong one, 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 6. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And chapter 5 and verse 6. And we're going to go down to verse 8. So therefore we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident. Now listen. If the Lord tarries and I get to see some of you through that last stage of life, and Lord willing, He just comes back tonight, right? But if I do, and, I, and I'm there with you and we're praying, I want you to be confident, right? Amen. Have it settled. And say, I know whom I have believed. 
And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. A confidence that Christians have. You say, well, isn't that prideful? No. It's a confidence in the work that Jesus did on the cross and a confidence in the Word of God and a confidence that you're a sinner and there's no way you're going to make it there unless He takes you. Amen? And He took you. So it's not a sinful, prideful confidence. Your confidence is in the Scriptures. I say and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. That's what Paul said. Now, he said, I'm willing to be absent from the body. And if I'm absent from the body, what happens? I'm present with the Lord. Right? Okay. That's the first thing we need to get from that. Just memorize that. Absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Okay? But then Paul said, I'm confident rather and willing. He wanted to go be with Jesus. He wanted to go be with Jesus. How could he say that? Faith. And he did what he was supposed to do. Right? I mean, he got the job done. So I think a person who's gotten the job done, they know they've done what the Lord wanted them to do. They can, they can know that they're going to go and they're going to meet the Lord. And, uh, but then somebody else who has been fooling around down here and disobedient to the Lord's will and you know, just kind of getting by uh, one foot in the church and one foot in the world. <laughs> you can't say this. You don't have the faith to do it. But uh, a person who's serving the Lord, they can say that. I don't know that I could. Just tell you that right now. I mean, I know to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But to say I'm willing, rather, I think if the Lord said I'm going to come back, I think I would get re- You know, like if he said to me, John, I want you to go tell Antiquity Baptist Church that I'm coming back in five years. Man, we would get busy, wouldn't we? We knew he was coming back in five years. We would get serious, right? Well, anyways, that's what happens to a Christian when a Christian dies. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. All right, we have a few minutes left. I just want to give you one thing, okay? This is extra. Now, if you have a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, I want you to write down these references, okay? Don't let them in for a Bible study. But let's just say... You happen to be in a Bible study with a Jehovah's Witness, which you shouldn't be. But if you did happen to be in one, okay, maybe you sit in, you know, sit on the porch and maybe ask them to show you, say, now, where do you find that when we die, the soul sleeps? This is probably where they'll take you. Okay, Um, let's go to Ecclesiastes. You remember where that is? Um, Yeah, after Proverbs. And uh, Ecclesiastes, I'm just going to give you two scriptures, okay? This is the first one. Um, I've used this on Jehovah's Witness before, and I'm going to tell you, it works. This is dynamite right here. This is powerful. Um, And it shook them, which is what I want to happen. I want to shake them up so hopefully they get saved. So they'll they'll take you to this. Uh, Hold on. I lost it. There it is. So Ecclesiastes 9. Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 4. I got in the back of this Bible my, my uh, visitation notes and notes for new converts and stuff. How to deal with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, so Ecclesiastes 9, 4 through 10 says here, 
Now I'm just going to pretend like I'm a good JW. Well, I am a JW. John Westover. But I mean like a Kingdom Hall JW. So Ecclesiastes 9 verse 4. For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die. But the dead know not anything. So you see, my friend, when you die, you know nothing. You go into an unconscious state in the grave where your soul sleeps unconscious in your body. Neither have they any more a reward. In other words, you're not going to work and earning a paycheck. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white. Let thy head lack no ointment. Live joyfully with your wife and so on and so forth. Because when you go into the grave, it's over with. And uh, you're, you're sleeping unconscious in the grave. Now they'll read that to you and they'll say, you see that? You see in verse 5? Soul sleep. And then verse 10, we'll have to finish that there. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whither thou goest. That's where you are going, the grave. So that's what they'll tell you. You see that? So, you know, you can take Scripture and you can take Scripture and use it to prove anything if you take it out of context. Um, Now, without explaining the context, you don't have to know all that. All you have to know is comparing Scripture to Scripture. Okay? Now look at Ezekiel. Ezekiel 32.21. Ezekiel is the fourth of the major prophets. So you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel and 32.21. Do you ever wonder, uh, guys, some teens that we have in here, do you ever wonder why we do sword drills when we go to youth rallies? It's because the churches that we come from do stuff like this when we study the Bible. The the preacher says, take your Bible and turn in your Bible to this place. And we're going to have to compare it with this one and let's turn over to here. It's because we're Bible people. We're Bible believers and we, we actually need our Bibles when we come to church. And so you're used to hearing the preacher saying, turn here and then compare that with this and then go here. So we all learn our Bibles. And the competition is supposed to see how well you've learned your Bible, how well you know it. So Ezekiel 32 and verse 21. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you that The word hell is in this verse. It's not a cuss word when it's in the Bible and used in this way. But that word hell comes from a Hebrew word, sheol, which the JW will know. He'll know that. And the JW will say, sheol, translated hell, is um, a synonym for the grave. That's all. That's all. Sheol is the grave. That's it. Under the ground, six feet. That's sheol to a JW. Okay, if that's the case... Then how is this happening? 21, wait a minute, what did I say? Ezekiel 32, 21. The strong among the mighty shall speak to him 
out of the midst of hell, what? With them that help him, they are gone down, they lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Wait a minute. Uncircumcised Gentiles that died and went to hell, what were they doing in hell speaking? If hell is just the grave and your soul is asleep and unconscious, like, like Solomon said in Ecclesiastes. Well, that's, that's one of several places, but you just tell them, what's this person doing speaking in hell? And as they, they can't answer you. And then that's when they'll shut their books and they'll be like, that's no fair, you were ready for me. Yeah, I'm ready for you, and I'm also ready to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you need to be saved. You need to be saved. You're... you're Deceived by your religion. There's somebody speaking in hell. According to the Bible. Do you believe that's the inspired word of God? And they would have to say yes. Okay, they're speaking in hell. Alright, All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you tonight for the word of God. I thank you for this study. And um, Lord, I thank you for the confidence that we can have. It's not a confidence in myself. It's surely not a confidence in in my own performance and what I've done for you. My confidence is in Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm thankful that I can have that confidence. And I'm thankful that I have a hope. I know where I'm going when I die. And it's because I've trusted in you. And so, Jesus, thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. Being a wonderful Savior and a wonderful Lord. And I pray, Lord, for the Jehovah's Witness in this area. Lord, I know that they get saved. I know that uh, they're able to come out from that false system of theology and, and that, uh, that cult, and they're able to be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that many would be saved in this area, and uh, I imagine they'd make fine Christians and fine soul winners, too. And, Lord, I pray that you'd bless us now, give us safety as we depart, and bring us back together at the next appointed time. In Jesus' name, amen.